engaging with the Lord this morning. And we appreciate that. That's what it's about here at the Oasis. We, we actually want you to come to church and be exhausted when you go home. Because to me, when you're engaging with the living God and you're putting something into it, you're going to be drained. You're going to be drained spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And that's good. There's, that, that's actually a positive thing. I mean, think about us today in comparison to the Old Testament worshipers. You know, we still have it good. When they went to worship God, they had sacrifices that they had to bring on their shoulders and, and carry in their arms. And, and when they got to the temple, they, they saw blood and they saw fire and they saw smoke and there was a stench of burning animal flesh and all of these things. And there was a lot going on. There was incense burning and everything like that. And they were very much not just spiritually engaged, they were physically and emotionally engaged in their worship. And that should be true of us today that even though we live in New Testament times, too often in our churches today, we as Christians become just spectators who sit back and who are not engaged with God throughout the service. And we want you to be engaged with the Lord here at the Oasis. This morning, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the story of Jesus. And we're in Luke chapter 11 this morning. And I want to take verses 1 through 28 this morning. I want to look at that chunk this morning together. Luke chapter Chapter 11, verses 1 through 28. This passage is all about this. Our view of God determines our response to God. Our view of God determines our response to God. And in this passage, we're going to see the goodness of God, the greatness of God, and the gravity of God in this 28-verse passage this morning. In fact, in verse 28, I'd, I'd like you to look there for just a moment. Jesus, even at the end of this passage, is calling people to respond properly. He says, blessed are those who hear the word of God or who hear the voice of God and respond properly to it. Obey it, follow it, apply it, you see. That's the whole deal. In this sort of section of the Gospel of Luke, it's all about responding to God. How are we responding? Every time God reveals himself to us, there should be a proper response. But again, that response is going to be based on our view of God. So in this first section, the first 13 verses of this section of Luke, we want to look at the goodness of God, and it all surrounds the exercise, if you will, of prayer in our life. You'll notice in Luke chapter 11, it starts out where Jesus is praying. Jesus did a lot of praying before his disciples. It is a reminder to us that faith is as much caught as it is taught. Uh, Jesus set an example. He was a model of prayer. And, and that really stirred and motivated his disciples, his followers, to want to pray like he did. And it wasn't to pray. I mean, these men grew up praying. They were good Jews. It wasn't like they had never prayed before. It's just they had never seen someone pray as much 
and, and in the way that Jesus prayed, and it captivated them, they wanted to know more about it. My father, I've shared this a few times over the years here at the Oasis, my father never sat me down and said, Jeff, I'm going to teach you to pray as your dad. I just saw my dad always praying. There would be days where I would be walking through the house and I would pass his bedroom and I would see him on his knees kneeling beside the bed. It was his act of praying, not just talking about prayer, but just seeing my father always praying that made the greatest impact in my life as far as prayer goes. You're seeing that here with Jesus. He's always praying. And so one of his disciples, after he's finished, said, Lord, would you teach us, would you give us insight and instruction on prayer just like John did to his disciples? And Jesus begins by sharing sort of a pattern of prayer. And he starts out with a very important word that I want to key in on this morning. He says, when you address God, call him your father. Because if you know me, and you have a relationship with me, then you know the Father. And I want you to view your God as your loving, good, and heavenly Father, the one who loves you, the one who wants to care for you, the one who wants to meet your needs and who wants you to come to him with anything and everything. In fact, in this passage, we see something very interesting. The meeting of our needs and God's glory are connected. Think about that. As you and I look to God to meet our needs, he gets glorified. That's why he calls us to come to him with anything and everything. That's why in this passage, he says, then I, I want you to come to your father but even understanding that intimacy, that, that closeness, that connection, don't lose your reverence and respect for God. Say, hallowed or honored be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. But then he says, ask God for your daily bread. And recognize that you're in need of forgiveness. And that you not only are in need yourself, but you need to be willing to give grace to others and forgive others. And then to ask God to protect us all from the temptations around us. So Jesus gives a template, if you will, a, a, a sort of a, a pattern for prayer. But I want to key in again on that word, Father. How do we view God? How do we view God? Because how we view him determines how we respond to him, even in prayer. Because then Jesus doesn't continue on giving them sort of a pattern for prayer. He, he gives them this principle, and he uses a story or an illustration. And it's a story that actually was pretty common in Jesus' day. People traveled a lot at night for some reason. And obviously, unlike today, there weren't hotels and motels and inns and all of that galore around. Hospitality amongst people as far as their homes was a big thing. And sort of we're coming full circle to that now, right? Where people now stay in other people's homes rather than in those places. So Jesus says, suppose you have this friend. And this friend just happens to come to you at midnight. 
and you have no food to set before him, and you go to this other friend, and you knock on the door, and you say, friend, I need some loaves of bread to feed the friend that just stopped by that I didn't know he was coming, and I have nothing to set before him. And Jesus says, you realize that in that day and age, families sort of all slept in the same room. That, that's why sometimes we read stuff like this and go, well, why would it be that he's waking everybody in the family up simply because he's knocking on the front door? Because they all sort of slept communally, if you will. So, so by him going at midnight to his friend's house and asking for help here and, and for food, the whole family's going to be disrupted. And, and Jesus is sort of saying that this friend is just not going to give up. He doesn't knock once and then the other friend doesn't come to the door and he leaves. No, he just keeps knocking. He is not going to be turned away. He's going to stay there at his friend's house until his friend and his whole family gets up and he gets some food so that he can take it back to his house and feed his friend who came unexpectedly. Now, Jesus isn't saying that God is like that friend who finally gives in to his friend's request because he got worn down. Just the opposite. Jesus is trying to tell us, your view of God should be different. Your heavenly Father is ready, waiting, and willing to hear your requests and respond to them. In fact, he's more ready to hear and respond to our prayers than we are to do the praying. <laughs> Which is why then Jesus says in the midst of this story, so I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And by the way, not to get too geeky or greeky on you this morning, but the words ask, seek, and knock are in the present active imperative of the Greek language. Meaning, first of all, it's a command from Jesus. Jesus isn't saying, I'm suggesting you go to your father and ask, seek, and knock. He's saying, I'm telling you, if you knew how much your father loves you, cares for you, wants you to come to him so that he can meet your needs and be glorified, I am commanding you, go to him. And because it's in the present active tense, it means you ask, you seek, and you knock, and you never stop. And Jesus uses a word here to describe the friend. He says, this friend was persistent in the Net Bible. That's the way it's translated. The, in the Greek, it literally means to be shameless, to be bold, to, to like not hold anything back, to not be afraid of knocking on heaven's door like the friend knocked on his friend's door for the loaves of bread. To, to not ever think in our minds that there's anything too big or too small to take to our Heavenly Father. That he is literally up there ready and waiting to hear our requests and to meet our needs. I want to pause for just a moment. 
I, I want to let that just sit in the room for a moment and even maybe in your home if you're watching this morning. Because I'm pretty sure that there's at least a few people within the sound of my voice this morning. You have hesitated to pray about something. Either because you're afraid to ask God for it, you think it's maybe too big, you maybe even think it's too small, you don't think he cares, you don't think he wants you to come to him for this, and you have held back. Jesus saying, then you don't know your heavenly father. Your view of him needs to change. You need to see your father in a different way. You need to see him as one who's up there in heaven waiting, ready, and willing to hear your prayers. And you're not praying to him as much as you should because you're holding back. You need to be more shameless. You need to be more fearless. You need to storm the throne of heaven with your requests. You need to not hold back anymore, and you need to start bringing all these things to the Lord. How often in the Bible do we hear that principle? Jesus said, men and women ought always to pray and never to faint. Philippians chapter 4, instead of being anxious and worried about all these things, why don't you let your request be made known to the Lord with thanksgiving? I mean, over and over and over again, God our Father is encouraging us, and he's doing it now through his Son, and his Son teaching his disciples about how we should view our Father. He's saying, if you know me, you know the Father. If you have me, then you have the Father. Then start looking at him in a proper way. And then he goes on to say, hey, listen, you all are sinful people. He says, but would you as a parent if your child came and asked for you for a fish, would you give him a snake? He says, if you had a child and your child came and asked you for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? Jesus said, no. You know how to give good gifts to those who ask you, and yet you're sinful. So notice verse 13, three very important words. How much more. Don't miss those three words. How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good things to you when you ask? And notice then, too, it's according to the goodness of God that he responds to our prayers. That's why this passage blows up whenever you have people who use a passage like this as teaching Christians that they have carte blanche with God and they can ask him for anything they want selfishly and he's obligated to meet it. No, no, that, that goes against that health, wealth gospel out there because Jesus is teaching God the Father will only give us what is good for us. If he doesn't deem it good, beneficial for us spiritually, then he will not give it to us because he's a good father who, according to his goodness, 
like he even uses our goodness, even though it's nothing like his goodness. He says, you know how to respond when people ask you for things. How much more will your heavenly father? And then he uses the example of the gift of the Holy Spirit which again shows that Jesus here is prioritizing the spiritual needs of man over the physical material needs. He's saying our greatest need is the presence of God in our life, and so what does God cook up in his own wonderful mind? He gives us himself, and he places the third person of the Trinity inside of every human being who believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior. He says, how much greater does it get than that? That you and I then carry the presence of God in the third person of the Trinity with us at all times throughout our life. We always have God with us because God's always inside of us. What an amazing God. What a great giver. None of us can outgive the Lord. None of us are as generous as God is. And so Jesus here is saying, our view of God determines our response to God. And many times, even as Christians, we do not pray as we should. We, we do not approach the throne of grace as boldly, as shamelessly as we should. We hold back because in our minds, God doesn't want to hear about this. God, God doesn't care about those things. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to even talk to my father about this and bring this to him. And Jesus is saying, we've got to change our view of who our father is. He wants you and I to bring each and everything to him because he loves us and he knows what's best for us and he will respond in his goodness and he will bless us and then be glorified because he's met our need in a wonderful way. Will you come to God today? Will you begin to ask, seek, and knock and never stop? And let me even say this before we move on. If some of you have stopped praying about something in your life, I want to encourage you to start praying about it again. Don't stop. Because that's what Jesus is teaching. He's saying if you knew your father, you would never stop asking. You would never stop seeking. You would never stop knocking. Because he loves you that much and he wants to hear everything. So bring it to him today. The goodness of God. Are we responding to God in a proper way because we view him as the good father who loves us and cares about every detail of our life? Well, then beginning in verse 14, Jesus talks to his followers about the greatness of God. And he does so out of healing a man who has been demon-possessed, and this demon has caused this man to be mute, to not be able to speak. And so Jesus delivers this man from the demon, and he's now able to speak. And those around him, I want you to note this, this is important. Many of those who are around Jesus when this miracle and this deliverance takes place, they are either skeptics of Jesus or enemies of Jesus. 
And yet I want you to note something. They cannot deny the miracle. They don't even try. That's important. Because sometimes even today, people who don't view Jesus as the Son of God, as the Lord of glory, they will try to deny that he ever had power or ever did miracles. No, even those who were there when it happened, they're not in a position where they can deny it. They've seen it. They've seen Jesus do miracles. So that's never the question. Can Jesus do this or not? Can he perform miracles or not? No, no, that's, that's not the issue. So what do they bring up? Well, a few of them say, hey, I can't deny that you're doing this miracle, but I believe you're doing it by the power of Satan. That's Beelzebub, the one who's mentioned there. Another name for Satan. You're doing this by satanic power, not God's power. And then others are like, well, we might not buy that, but we want to see more. Show us another sign from heaven. And Jesus then uses this example to, again, teach those who are present. He says, gals and, and fellows, let's think about this for a minute, just logically. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So how logical even is it for you to say that I am casting out demons in some way destroying Satan's kingdom? Why would Satan do that? That doesn't even make sense. Is Satan going to destroy himself and his own kingdom? No. And then Jesus says, oh, and what are you going to do with others who are practicing exorcisms and casting out demons? Are you going to say the same thing about them because they're contemporaries of ours? Are you going to go around saying that all those who are delivering demons, including my disciples, that I gave power and authority to do that, are you going to say all of them are doing it by the power of Satan? Or are you just going to say that about me, you see? One thing we know about Jesus in his life and ministry the presence of the supernatural was always there, always very active. And, and one of the things that Jesus wants to remind all of us is this is real. This, we're not talking about some myth here, some make. There is an invisible spiritual world that we all have to deal with, that we all have to come to grips with. It is real, you see but we need to look at it in a proper way because Jesus then goes on to say, let me share a little story with you. He says in verse 21, there's this strong man and he's got his kingdom and he's got his possessions and all that and I'm not going to deny, Jesus says, this guy's got some, some strength, right? Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Satan. But then notice verse 22. A stronger one arrives. You know who the stronger one is? Jesus. And Jesus being stronger begins to conquer, begins to dismantle the strong guy's kingdom. In fact, he begins to defeat him in many ways and, and, and by many means and, and begins to even plunder his kingdom because a greater, stronger one is now on the scene. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's showing his followers Here's one of my purposes for why I'm doing miracles. My miracles 
are an audio-visual example and testimony and witness to my power, my sovereignty, and my rule over the kingdom of darkness. It is to show you as human beings that, yes, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil, it is real. There are demonic forces and, and beings out there, but I'm greater than they are. I'm stronger than they are. And therefore, you never need to live in fear of those beings. And, and you don't ever need to live in fear of anything because I am greater and stronger than any force that you will ever come up against because I'm the stronger one. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so what Jesus is saying is, do you view God in his greatness? Understanding a couple things. First of all, that God is greater than all the demonic forces put together. You take Satan and all the demons and you put them all together, they don't stand a chance against Jesus. He's the stronger one. Do you believe that today? Do you view him that way? And then take that principle. Because that means then that if Jesus is stronger than all the evil forces that are invisible to us in the universe right now, then that also translates and applies that Jesus is greater and stronger than anything that you and I will ever come up to deal with in this life. There's nothing that you and I will ever encounter in this life that is greater or stronger or more powerful than Jesus. He's always going to be the stronger one. Do I view him in that way? Do I view him the way Paul viewed him? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he's almighty. And that means I never, as a Christian, say I can't. I say I can. Because I have the greater power because that's the way I view him. And I'm not going to start looking at my circumstances and the situations and challenges and obstacles and opposition that I find myself in and get captivated and enamored by them because I'm going to stand in awe of the greatness of my God and therefore they will pale in comparison to him. That was the problem with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. God promised them the promised land. And yet when they sent the spies in, they lost sight of how great their God was and they got their eyes on those giants. And they come back and gave a bad report and said, we can't go into that land even though God promised us because there are giants in there. I don't care if those giants were 20 feet tall. Compared to God, God is stronger and if they would have just had a view of God that was proper, they wouldn't have never had to wander for 40 years. They could have went straight in. I think about that in our lives. How often in our lives are we, say, still here in this place when we could be over here with God, but, but we're still, we have an improper view of God 
and a greater view of our circumstances or our situation or our challenge or whatever, and it keeps us here in fear or being intimidated or stuck here because we're not trusting that God is greater and can bring us from here over here. And that's why we don't then respond in a proper way when God is leading us. Because like many in the Bible, and we've seen this throughout our study, especially of the Old Testament, God comes to someone like Moses and said, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. Oh, God, I, not, not me. Get somebody else. I'm not your man. I'm not eloquent. I'm not this. I'm not. Well, I know that, Moses. But it's not about you. It's about me. Stop limiting what you can do because it's not you that's going to do it. It's me working through you so that I get the glory for it. Start seeing me in my greatness. And that's what God is teaching us through Jesus today. He's not only teaching us that we should view God in his goodness as our father who wants us to ask, seek, and knock. He's telling us here, even by what he does, by delivering this demon-possessed man who's caused this man not to be able to speak, that I am here now. The kingdom of God has arrived. He, he makes that statement there in that passage. He says, the kingdom, I'm doing this by the finger of God, and the kingdom of God has already arrived on the scene. And these miracles that I'm doing is showing that I am already dismantling and destroying the kingdom of darkness. you got to believe that. So that no matter what the kingdom of darkness tries to do to you, no matter how it tries to get its grip on you and get its, its fingernails, if you will, into you, I am greater and I can rescue you and I can deliver you and I can bring you out of whatever the kingdom of darkness is doing in your mind, in your heart, or in your body, or in your soul, or in your spirit, because I am the stronger one. I am the stronger one. God wants us to dismiss the giants, whoever they are and whatever they are, and believe in his greatness. And then one more. Beginning in verse 23 through 28, we learn about the gravity of God. There is no person in the universe more important, more consequential, more significant than Jesus Christ. Do we live that way? Because notice what Jesus says, first of all, in verse 23. He makes a startling statement, a statement that really no other person could make or should make. He says, if you're not with me, then you're against me. Neutrality to Jesus is opposition to Jesus. Jesus said, if you're not gathering with me and helping me gather people into my kingdom, then you're scattering the sheep. There is no middle ground. There is no way to avoid Jesus. At some point, every human being has to come to grips with who Jesus is to them. And it cannot be avoided. You can keep trying to kick the can down the road all your life, but if you go out into eternity, you're still going to have to deal with Jesus. 
There is no way to avoid him because of the gravity of who he is. He is the son of God. And you and I cannot remain neutral. And that's why Jesus is basically saying, so why aren't you all in with me? Because you'll never have a relationship in your life that should be as important, significant, or consequential as your relationship to me. That's why the Bible teaches us God should be our first love. That we should love Jesus and follow him and pay attention to him and wrap our lives around him more than anything or anyone else. Because there is nothing or no one more important, more consequential, or more significant than Jesus. And you and I can't remain neutral. Neutrality is automatically opposition. And then Jesus shares this, what we might think is sort of a strange story. And how does it fit into what he just said about the gravity of God? He uses this illustration. He says, listen, there's a spirit, an evil spirit, that has inhabited a, a person. And it's sort of tired of being in that person, so it leaves for a while and it looks for some other place to light and basically never finds a place. So it comes back and then it brings with it seven more so that the fate of this poor person is worse than it was at the beginning because at the beginning it only had one evil spirit. Now it's got eight. What's Jesus trying to teach? Well, a couple things. One, he's saying that when it comes to a relationship with God, when it comes to conversion, when it comes to following me, you got to understand that it's more than external renovation. It's inward transformation. That human reformation never works. It only sort of tries to clean up the, the outside, but it never takes care of what truly is needed, which is an internal transformation where God works from the inside out. That's why the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation. Old things are passing away, all things are becoming new because it's, it's a total transformation. So Jesus says conversion is more than just trying to clean ourselves up. Because what happens to human beings who try to clean themselves up instead of letting God come in and totally take over their life is actually it gets worse rather than better. And the other thing Jesus here is teaching, because of the gravity of who he is, is that when God created each of us as human beings, he made us a vacuum. Our soul as a human being is a vacuum. And unless our soul is filled with God, who is the only one who can fulfill and satisfy our soul, then eventually it'll be filled with something else of lesser value and worth than God because we can't stand to let the vacuum remain. We, we can't. It's impossible. No human being can let the vacuum remain a vacuum. Things are going to start flooding into our life if it's not God. Because only God, because of the gravity of who he is, only God can fulfill and satisfy a soul. And if we don't fill our lives with God, 
then we end up filling our lives with all these other worldly things that never fulfill and satisfy us. And that's why human beings today all over this world who don't have God in their life, they keep searching and looking for that one thing or that one relationship or that one, you know, uh, happening in their life that can finally sort of fill that void in vacuum, but they'll never find it apart from Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you today, if you're here today and you still got that hole, you still got that ache, you still got that lack of fulfillment and satisfaction, I'm asking you with all your heart, would you consider inviting Jesus Christ into your life? Because only Jesus, because of who he is, can fill us up and totally fulfill and satisfy us. Jesus says, the water I want to give you, if you drink from that, you'll never be thirsty again. Have you come to the water that only Jesus can give? You see, if we truly viewed God as important, consequential, and significant as he is, our priorities many times in our life would be different. Instead of running after all these other things in our life and filling our life with these things that we try to sort of, you know, and especially as Christians, we're really good about this, you know, or bad about this, however you want to look at it. We have this relationship with God, but, but for many of us, we spend our whole life still not thinking he's enough. So we sort of have this relationship with God. We're like, well, God, I'm glad I know you as my Savior, and, and I'm glad my sins are forgiven, and I'm, I'm glad I know where I'm going to go after, after I die. But, but God, look at the world. Look at all these things. Man, I want to I have all this too. And God says to us, if you seek first the kingdom of God, you'll have everything you'll ever want. And guess what? you'll be more fulfilled and satisfied and you'll be able to enjoy it because it's only through God that we can truly find enjoyment in this life, even in the worldly things. Because that's his gift to us when we seek him first and prioritize him. And that's why all of a sudden this woman in the crowd says, blessed be your mother. Nothing wrong with that. We know. Mary should be blessed. She was an honorable servant of the Lord, but notice what Jesus said in verse 28 again. But Jesus said, but blessed rather be those who when they hear the voice of God, they respond properly to it. God says, do we need to change our view of God? Do we need to see him in his goodness? in his greatness or in his gravity today? Because how we view God will always determine how we respond to him. And guess what we're getting ready to do? Respond to God. How are you and I going to respond to the worship and to the word that we've experienced here today? And let me again warn all of us you can't remain neutral. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm just not going to deal. No. Neutrality is actually opposition to Jesus. 
If you're not with me, then you're against me. Are we with him today? Will we respond properly to him today? And I want to encourage us to maybe manage our ending time here at the Oasis a little bit differently. Nicole and the worship team, they're going to come in just a moment and they're going to lead us in a, a final worship song. But, but during that song, not that obviously some of us aren't going to be engaged in the singing and praising and all of that of the worship song, but I also want to encourage many of you do some business with God during that time. This would be a great time to begin to ask, seek, and knock for something. And maybe even some of you here today, you, you want or you would desire for somebody to pray with you today. I'm going to be here. I'm going to even ask our elders who are present in the 9 o'clock service to just be on call or be on alert. Some of our other leaders, you're here. You see people coming Come alongside and say, can I pray with you or pray for you about something? God is calling us to respond to him, to ask, to seek, to knock, to recognize that there's no greater power than his power. Do we truly believe that or are we still stuck in something that we feel like we can't overcome it? Yes, you can. Through Christ, I can do all things. And maybe some of us just need to retweak our priorities a little bit because we haven't put Jesus in his proper place. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team to come, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me and join me as we close in prayer and then open this auditorium up. This is a working environment right here. This isn't just spectator. This is participation. And we are the body of Christ. And this is his house. And we're going to do business with God today. We're going to engage with him today. As we finish out our 9 o'clock service. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you today for your presence here. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you want to be here to bless your people. That, Lord, you are ready waiting and willing for us to storm the gates of heaven with our requests, with our needs, with our wants, with our desires. Yes, the response is up to you. We leave it up to you to answer according to your goodness. But God, may we be bold in coming to you. May we be shameless in coming to you. May we be fearless in coming to you, God, with anything and everything. Nothing's too big. Nothing's too small. How much more, God, do you want to hear your people cry out to you today? So, Lord, I pray right now that we will not only worship you in your house, but, Lord, we will do business with you right now, that we will ask, we will seek, we will knock, and we will never stop. These things we pray in the mighty, powerful, and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.